Welcome to Life Source Church. We are so glad you found us. We hope that you will experience God with us as you hear the preaching of the Word. Well, the kids are lit up today, aren't they? That's a good thing. This can be a hard thing for the one leading them, but it's a good thing. If they're excited about being here. Well, how many of you do not like snakes? You say, I don't like snakes. Yeah, there we go. And so a bunch of you are sitting out there real uneasy right at this moment, right? Because right in your face. Well, I, I'm not so bothered by snakes except when they surprise me. I don't like it when I'm walking down a path and all of a sudden, that'll, that gets me jumpy, okay? There are about 2,700 different kinds of snakes in our world. Okay, but only 400 of them are venomous. Now, isn't that encouraging to you? Um, the question would be, is, is how do you know <laughs> which ones are venomous and which ones are not? Well, generally, there are identifying marks on snakes, okay? And, and um, typically, a poisonous snake will have a, more of a triangular head, Usually the eyes are um, uh, perpendicular. They aren't round. The, the pupils are, are kind of uh, elongated. Um, and, and sometimes there's a pit between the eyes and the nose or the mouth, okay? And, and uh, the problem is, is that those are not consistent. <laughs> but there are those marks. You see those marks, you have reason to think the snake is probably poisonous. Now, there are other marks as well. Uh, but a lot of those are on the bottom of the snake. And the snakes don't usually take kindly to picking them up and turning them over to look at them, you know. And by the time you find out it's poisonous, it's probably too late. Okay? Now, now the snake we have up here in the picture is a black mamba. And uh, it is the second largest venomous snake in the world after the king cobra. It's called the black mamba, but notice the snake is not black. It gets that name because when it opens its mouth, inside of the mouth, there's black. So the, by the time you see the black part, they're already coming for you. Now, um, the black mamba, you, you definitely don't want to get bitten by a black mamba. Its venom is almost always lethal, unless you just happen to have the anti-venom right there. The, the, a single bite from this snake, from a full-size black mamba, normally will kill an adult within an hour, sometimes as quickly as 20 minutes, and a child very quickly. Um, black mambas have enough venom that they can deliver a lethal bite 12 times in a row. So you get bit more than once, you're in even bigger trouble. And, and this snake is, is very aggressive. Uh, it will attack you if it feels threatened, and it will come after you. And that is somewhat of a problem because it is capable of slithering along at 12 miles an hour. That's 17 and a half feet a second. So from me to Ray, we got one second, Ray, if I'm the snake, or you're the snake. You don't like snakes now? <laughs> now, here's the good news. Black mambas do not live in New England. They live in, in Africa. Now, if you lived in Africa, you would definitely want to know the identifying marks of this snake, wouldn't you? 
You saw that you'd want to know when you see this snake that it is a black mamba and we need to give it a wide berth and stay away from it. We need to kill it if we can. And so you'd want to know what are those identifying marks? So you can identify the snake and maybe you'd want to even learn identifying marks of snakes that are not poisonous that maybe look a little bit like it so you could tell the difference. Now today we're not here to learn about snakes though. But what I do want to talk to you about is that idea of identifying marks. Identifying marks. Marks that can be used to identify not snakes, but Christians. What are the identifying marks of Christians? Are there any specific marks that we can look at to determine whether or not someone is a real Christian? Well, religions, man's religions, are well known for having specific ways of dressing so people can show that they're part of that religion, right? I mean, you can see how different people would dress, and you would say, oh, well, they're this religion or that religion. And they are marks that you can use to identify, and they, they stand out and are easily identifiable. But the question we want to address this morning is this. When we're talking about what it really means to be a Christian, what it really means, are there any identifying marks that would enable us to know if someone is living like a real Christian or not? Is there any way for us to tell by observing someone whether or not they are really a Christian? Well, let me say up front that the Bible does not talk about dress styles or outward appearances that you could use as marks to identify, you know, whether someone is a real Christian or not. Now, now human beings really like that kind of stuff, though, don't they? You know, dressing up in certain ways to communicate something. But the Bible just doesn't say anything like that. It, it just doesn't. It's, in fact, it, it talks about that the outward is not the real issue. What? The inward is the real issue. And if the inward is right, you know, the other things on the outside will work out. Well, then what does God say is the mark that identifies a real Christian? If someone is really living like a real Christian, what will be the identifying marks in their lives? Well, when Jesus was here on earth in his, his ministry, he was asked, one day they came and asked him, what is the most important commandment? Well, maybe that's the mark. You might think that, right? So let, let's take a look there and see. His answer, I think, is enlightening. Turn to Matthew chapter 22. If you don't have a Bible with you here today, that's okay. Um, we have Bibles in the pews there, and we would encourage you to follow along with us. And I'll give you the page numbers. Make it easy for you to find where we are. This uh, passage of Scripture is on page 1140. And it's really valuable for you to follow along. So grab that Bible out of the pew, turn to page 1140. And we want to see what his answer is here. And see if we come up with an identifying mark for what it really means to be a Christian. Matthew 22, starting in verse 34. It says, but when the Pharisees heard, they had silenced the Sadducees. Let's stop right there and just make sure we understand where we're at. The Pharisees were a religious group that arose after the Jews had been removed from the land, and so they didn't have a temple anymore to worship in. They weren't there. They were all spread out all over the world. And the Pharisees 
uh, came to being at that time of, of how do we keep the law even though we aren't in the land? How do we do this? And, and so they began teaching about the law, and they started off really good. But by the time of Jesus, they had become so focused on outward things and not the heart. But they were a very powerful religious group. Now, the Sadducees had not gone that direction. The Sadducees had gone the direction of saying, well, we, we want to be politically involved. And so they were the political rulers of Israel. The Pharisees, very much religious rulers. Sadducees, political rulers. And, and Jesus had d- answered some questions from the Sadducees and basically blown them away with his answer. And showed how they were wrong about the scriptures. Well, so this is what he's saying here. Now, when the Pharisees, and by the way, the Pharisees and the Sadducees weren't the greatest of friends. So the Pharisees probably weren't too upset that Jesus had messed up the Sadducees. Now it's our turn. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Then one of them, a lawyer, asked himself a question, or asked him, Jesus, a question, testing him and saying, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? All right, so God has given us all these commandments. Which is the biggest, the most important, the one that needs top priority? Verse 37, Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So this first commandment, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, your whole being, and then love your neighbor like yourself, right up there with it. Those two commands. Now, when Jesus said the law and the prophets, you have to understand that, that really, for all practical purposes, I mean, they didn't have the New Testament yet, hadn't been written yet. Jesus hadn't died and risen from the grave yet. So we didn't have the New Testament written yet, but they had the Old Testament. And so for all practical purposes, Jesus just told them the whole Bible is summed up in these commands. Love God, love your neighbor as yourself. So it refers, he's talking about everything that can be right or wrong. Everything that has a moral component with respect to how we live. Everything related to how we're supposed to interact with one another and get along in a way that honors both God and man properly. He says these two things summarize all of that. Now think. We might have expected Jesus to summarize it some other way. He might have said it's really all about holiness. Is holiness an important thing in the Bible? Yeah, throughout the Bible. We think he might have summed it up saying holiness, but he didn't. It might have been about righteousness, this idea of doing what's right, having an inner quality of righteousness that leads you to do what's right on the outside, but he didn't do that. Faithfulness is crucial, but he didn't say faithfulness sums it all up. And sincerity, does sincerity matter? Yes, sincerity is what makes us not be hypocrites in these things. But he didn't say sincerity. He summed it all up with love. Love. In other words, all the Bible says about having a proper relationship with God can be summed up in two words. Love him. Love him. 
Because if you truly love God from the heart, it affects everything else about your relationship with him. And Jesus said that if you love God genuinely, you will what? You will obey him, Jesus said. If you love God, you'll, you'll do what God says. So love him, Jesus says. That sums it up. And then next, all that stuff that the Bible says about interacting properly with people. And really, that's most of our lives, isn't it? How we have to interact with people and what we do and what we don't do and why we do it. All those things, Jesus said, it can be summed up really in this short statement. Love them the same way you love yourself. You know, that means that you value them equally to yourself. Every human being is equally valuable as you. And love recognizes that and, and moves toward people in that way. It means, I mean, think about it. Do you naturally love yourself? You do. Now, you might say, no, I really hate myself at this point in life. And sometimes we do feel that way. But you know how you got to where you hated yourself in life? It's because you loved yourself so much and, and did, you know, what you felt like doing, wanted to do. You did what came right for number one. And you ended up hating yourself because of it. But so you naturally love yourself and you try to meet the needs that you feel. And, and so loving others as yourself means you care about their needs being met too. Because you love them the same way you love yourself. Now, this kind of love is what Jesus taught elsewhere when he stated what we've come to call the golden rule, right? The golden rule. This is where you treat other people the way you would like to be treated in those circumstances. That's loving them what? Like you love yourself. And so the golden rule embodies this. If you were hungry and had no food and no way to get food, would you want someone to help you? Okay. If you were hurting deep in your soul because of difficult life events, would you want someone to care? However you would like to be treated in those kinds of situations is the way you need to treat other people who are in those kinds of situations. That's loving them the way you love yourself. That's applying the golden rule. Can, can you imagine if everyone in the world lived like this? It would change your ride to work tomorrow, wouldn't it? In a big way. If, if everybody truly loved God and then loved others the same way they love themselves, it would be an awesome world to live in. So should Christians live like this? You guys here today? Yeah, Christians should live. Should we be models of this for the world to see and to be blessed by, be an example for them of it? Yes, we ought to be. Is it safe to say then that part of what it really means to be a Christian is having this love motivation in all that we do? Absolutely. So then, is this the mark? Is this the identifying mark of a real Christian? No. It's part of what it really means to be a Christian, but it's not what we're going to call the identifying mark of a real Christian. In other words, it's not what the world will use to judge whether or not we are truly followers of Christ. Well, what is it then? What is the mark? What's that standard? 
How about right doctrine? Let's put right doctrine up there. Is right doctrine the standard? You believe the right things. You could you know, have a list of things that you believe. Is it right doctrine? I mean, is right doctrine important? Does it matter what you believe about God and Jesus Christ and the Word of God? It absolutely matters. And in how we are saved, it matters. Or maybe it's the right positions on the moral issues of our day. Is our society struggling with making right moral decisions? Hugely. So, you know, well, maybe the mark is, is those right moral decisions. Or is it godly living? Godly living on our own part. You know, where we're turning away from sinful habits and, and approaches to life and we're, we're living by the teachings of the Bible. Is that the mark? Well, all of these things are important and they are part of, you know, what it really means to be a Christian, but they are not the mark. What is it then? Well, Jesus really tells us straight up what the mark is. Turn in your Bibles to John chapter 13. This page 1241 in the Bible that's in the pew, page 1241, John chapter 13. Now, in this chapter, we, uh, by the time we get to this chapter, Jesus is coming to the end of his ministry on earth. He's got the, uh, all the 12 together, and they're going to, to celebrate the Passover together. Uh, he's, he's coming close to the time of the crucifixion, the resurrection. And so everything is going to change from the way it has been to the way it's going to be. Everything's going to change the disciples. And so he's reviewing those things, and then he says this to, to them. Starting in verse 34. He says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And what kind of love? What do you say in verse 34? What kind of love? The kind of love I have loved you with. The way I have loved you. This is the mark. This is the mark. And I would encourage you to somehow hold your place here because we will be back to this verse before we're done today. Well, here's a question then. Jesus says a new commandment, but didn't we already see love? We already said, saw that. What's, and that came from the Old Testament. So how is this a new commandment? I mean, you already said love God, love others the same way you love yourself. So what is new about this? Well, the new part is this. As I have loved you. Love like Jesus. That's the mark. This is the mark. You see, this level of love is significantly above love your neighbor as yourself. It, it's, it's above this golden rule kind of love that applies to everyone, and it is the mark. So what is it all about then? Well, let's, let's go to the Word of God to see how did Jesus love us. He says, you love each other the way I love you, how has he done that? So turn to Romans chapter 5, page 1298 in the Pew Bible. We have a few more verses than usual we're looking up today, but just hang in there. Romans chapter 5 and verse number 8, page 1298. 
says, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Did you have to straighten up your life before Jesus said, I'm going to meet your need? No, you were a what? A sinner. We are all born sinners. We all go our own way. We all do our own thing in, in opposition to what God says is right. We all do. But God made provision for us before we ever changed a thing. And so you need to understand this, that Christ's love is not motivated in any way, shape, or form by our merit. We do not earn God's love. It is freely given. Now think about that in your relationship with other people. Is, is it easy to love people who are loving to you? <laughs> it's easy to love people who you view as, oh, such a good person. But that person who is rotten to you, and that's a nice word to say about people, yeah, well, you know, they straighten up, I'll treat them nice. But that isn't the way Jesus loved. He loved and acted on his love before there was any earning of it, any merit to go along with this. And by the way, this is what we have to understand to be saved, isn't it? If we want to have eternal life and have our sins forgiven, we must understand that we have sinned against God and our sins have separated us from him. If we die in that condition, we, we go to hell, the Bible says, separated from God forever. The good news is what we just read, that, that Jesus loved us, and he came into the world, and because he loved us, he lived that perfect and sinless life. He died on the cross, and as he did, the Bible says that God took the penalty, the eternal penalty for my sin and for your sin, the sins of the whole world, and as he hangs there on the cross dying, he pays the penalty, the sufficient payment. He rises again from the dead three days later and says to us, if you will acknowledge sincerely from the heart that you know you've sinned and, and you need a Savior and you will place your trust in me as your Savior, you'll receive me as Savior. He says, I will forgive every sin. I will give you eternal life and I will come to live inside of you and begin changing you in wonderful ways from the inside out. So, to start off with, the love of Christ for us is unmerited. Turn over to chapter 8, a couple pages. Page 13, 8, 1301 in the Pew Bible. This is exciting news here, the love of Christ. Has anybody ever loved you and quit loving you? I've had people who loved me, or I thought loved me, said they loved me, but they quit loving me. Maybe it got inconvenient, hard. Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 35. Actually, start in verse 34. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Because these things happen to people. He says, as it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who, what's the next word? Loved us. 
For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The love of Christ cannot be overcome by any life circumstances. Nothing brings it to an end. Okay, that's how we're supposed to love other people. Turn to Galatians chapter 2, page 1338. 1338, Galatians chapter 2, verse number 20. We actually looked at this verse a couple weeks ago. But Paul talking about this new union he has with Christ and the relationship. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. And here's what I want you to get who loved me and gave himself for me. Christ's love motivated him to give his life to meet our needs, to give himself away. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 2. That's page 1343. 1343. Ephesians chapter 2. Let's start in verse 1. It says, and you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit, who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. Do you understand how messed up you are apart from Christ? If Christ didn't work in our lives... We just go our own way, and we're selfish, and we sin. Verse 4, but God, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So I want you to understand this. Christ's love for us enabled him to see beyond where we were to what we could be. You see that? He didn't say, yeah, this is what you were, but man, here's where you're going to go. Here's what you can be. And then he did what was necessary to bring it about. Turn over to chapter 5, page 1346. He challenges, verse 1, Therefore be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love. Remember, walk means how you walk through life. It's how you live your life. Walk in love. As Christ also has loved us and given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Do you remember in the garden when Jesus was contemplating what was going to happen on the cross? What did he say? Father, is there any way that we don't have to do this? But we know his words, and we're so glad for his words, right? But not my will, yours be done. And he sacrificed himself. He surrendered himself to his Father and, and surrendered completely 
so that he can meet our needs. And if we're going to love like Christ, we must surrender ourselves to God completely so that we can meet the needs of other people. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 12. Page 1383, 1383, Hebrews chapter 12, and, and we're going to look at a verse, it's actually a quotation from the Old Testament, in the Proverbs. Hebrews chapter 12, verse number 6, says, For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and scourges every son whom he receives. Because God loves us, he challenges us when we do what's wrong. He brings it up to us, confronts us with it. Christ loves us enough to confront us about things that don't belong in our lives. Things that are going to do us damage if left unchecked. And now turn over to 1 John. 1 John, page 1401. And we're actually going to start a little before that, and I don't have the page number. We're going to, if you find 1401, 1 John 4, then go back a page or two toward the front to chapter 2. First John chapter 2, starting in verse 1. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Now what in the world is a propitiation? Well, next time you go to McDonald's and you order that meal, they tell you what the bill is, and, and you hand them, a tw- say the bill comes out to who knows what it's going to be, right? $8.37. And you hand them a, a $10 bill and you say, this is a propitiation for my meal. The word propitiation means a satisfactory payment. Sufficient payment. Jesus' death on the cross is sufficient payment for us. Okay? It's sufficient payment. But it says very clearly, it's not just sufficient payment for us Christians, is it? What did the verse say? Not just for us Christians, but for the whole world. Jesus died for everybody. Now that means something. Turn over to chapter 4 and verse number 10. It says it again about, and links us up with love. Chapter 4, verse 10, in this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the satisfactory payment for our sins, and as we saw earlier, for the whole world, because he loved us. This is what I want you to understand. Jesus loved the whole world. Jesus loved every person in the world. Jesus' death for every person in the whole world, satisfactory payment for the sins of the whole world, that means Jesus went to the cross and paid the penalty for people who will never trust him as Savior. What kind of love is that? He made a satisfactory payment for our well-being without any guarantee that we would respond and love him back. So how are we to love each other? How are we to love each other? We're to love each other like Jesus has loved us in all these ways we just read about. We're to love each other. So think, this means we love 
without even considering whether or not our love is deserved. We love in a way that no life circumstance can ever stop, even if it's that other person doing wrong to us. We love by giving of ourselves sacrificially to meet each other's needs. And we love in a way that enables us to see the good in people, to see beyond where they're at right now to where they can be, and then helping them get there. It means we love by willingly surrendering our own lives completely to God, knowing that only then, when we're completely surrendered, can we really help other people. We love enough to be willing to go to those difficult, awkward, uncomfortable places in our relationships with other people because they need to know the truth so they can become who God wants them to be. And we do all of this without any consideration of whether or not we will ever be appreciated or loved in return. That's a, that's a higher level of love than love your neighbor as yourself. In verse number 11 there in 1 John 4, Beloved, if God so loved us, if he loved us like this, we also ought to love one another the same way. This then is the mark of a real Christian. Turn back to John chapter 13, page 1241. 1241 in the Pew Bible. Let's read it again. Verse 34, he says, A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. How do we love one another? As I have loved you, that you also love one another. Then by this, all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. This kind of love. So what did Jesus say is the mark? What is the world going to be looking for when it's trying to decide whether or not you're really a Christian or not? What's the mark? Loving like he loves. And understand this. Jesus made, this is the mark that the world will use to judge whether or not we're really followers of Christ. Jesus is the one who said it, right? This is the mark. Now, I think when we start understanding this truth, it will shed a lot of light on what's going on in the world around us and why there's such a backlash against Christianity in society. So I know we've been going for a little while here, but I want you to kind of gear up here and go with me. Who was the most drawn to Jesus when he was on earth? Religious people or non-religious sinful people? Non-religious sinful people were most drawn to him. There was just something about Jesus that drew people to him, even though he was very different than they were. He was holy and righteous and perfect, and they weren't, but they were drawn to him. When Jesus left us on earth, he gave us the Holy Spirit to live inside us and, and, and understand that we, we are the body of Christ in the world today. We are Jesus' representative in the world. That's us. So how do the most non-religious, sinful people in our culture today feel about Christianity and the church that Jesus left on the earth to represent him? Are these non-religious sinful people, are they drawn to church and Christians? Or in our culture, are they largely angry with church and Christianity? Well, more often than not, the, these non-religious -sin, non sinful people in our culture are angry with the church and Christianity. Or at best, they're just ambivalent. 
They are not drawn to us. And I, I understand there's obviously exceptions, but as a whole, that's the way it is. Turn on the news. Well, well, why is this? If these kind of people were drawn to Jesus, but not to us, why? Maybe it's because by and large, we haven't looked very much like Jesus in our dealings with the world. And I'm not necessarily trying to talk so much about us here at Life Source Church, but about Christianity in general and our modern American culture, which we are influenced by. Think about this. The world has heard from Christians the truth that abortion is sinful and takes the life of a human being. The world has heard from Christians the truth that marriage was designed by God to be between one man and one woman for life, and that any other kind of marriage is sinful, detrimental to our nation. The world has heard from Christians the truth that the role of government should be limited and that it shouldn't be undermining people by making them dependent on government and aid. The world has heard from Christians the truth that we have rights as Christians, that our founding fathers were Christians and that we have the right to have a manger scene on public property and display the Ten Commandments in courthouses and begin public meetings and prayer and on and on it goes. The world has heard lots of true things from Christians and that's what we've become known for. Truths about how we are right and they are wrong and they are now making a judgment. They are doing exactly what Jesus said they would do. They are making a judgment about whether we are really his followers on the basis that it doesn't look like we're loving. They are not seeing people who are so filled up with love for each other like Jesus was filled up with love. They are not seeing people so filled up with, with this Jesus kind of love that it just... We're so full that it splashes out on the world around us as we go through life. They are not seeing Jesus in us because we don't look very much like him. And so their judgment, they're doing exactly what Jesus said. They're saying these people aren't really disciples of Jesus. These people aren't really followers of Christ. And sadly, more often than not, they're right. Oh, we're saved, right? We are saved, and we trust that Christ is Savior. We are saved. He saves us, and he keeps us saved. We're going to heaven when we die. But in the here and now, based on the way we live, according to what this mark is, far too often we don't live like real Christians. Well, what's the solution then? Is it wrong to speak up about moral issues and what's right and wrong? No, it's not wrong, not at all. The problem is that those things are what we've become known for. Those are the things that have come to define us and, and define us to unsave people, what it means to be a Christian. And that has to change, folks. You hear me? That has to change if, if Christianity is going to reach our nation and our world for Christ. But this change cannot be superficial. It cannot be just an image management solution. The change has to be genuine in me and in you and in us together. We have to start from the heart making love the basis and motivation in all of our interactions with people. 
especially here with each other. And not just golden rule love, because that kind of love should be a given for every Christian. Golden rule love will probably not earn you the label, a real Christian. It will probably earn you the, he's a really nice guy label, or she's a really nice lady label. This has to be a like Jesus loves us kind of love. And it starts right here among us in our church. Among us as believers in Christ, in the church, the command is for us to love each other like Christ loves us. And we learn how to do that and really, when we really start doing it, it will start to splash out from us onto the world around us. It'll affect how we love others. And, and guess who will take notice? All those non-religious, sinful people will take notice. And they say, Wow. These people seem like real Christians. I don't know what's all true about Christianity or not, but these people seem like real Christians. Because we will look more like Jesus, and, and because of that, many of them will be drawn to him in us. So what can you do about this? What should we do? Well, I want you to settle something in your heart this morning. We're just about out of time here, so I don't know what I'm going to cover here, but I, I, you've got to settle this in your heart today. You need to decide to become famous. Settle in your heart that you are going to become famous for this, that you are like Jesus when it comes to loving people. Famous. What are you known for? What is it that... What comes to mind when people think of you? That's what you would be famous for, okay? And you've got to say, I have lots of things many people know me for, but by, somehow, by God's grace, this has to be at the top. That I love people like Jesus loves people. That I love like him. Because then they will know that we're his followers. Well, how in the world are you going to learn to love like that? Well, two quick ways. One is the Bible says we, we do it by learning more and more about how he loves us. We love him because he first loved us. And when we learn more and more, how did Jesus really love me? So what you want to do is you're going to devote yourself to a lifetime, one day at a time, of being in God's word and saying, how do you love me? How do you love, how have you loved me? How does it help me, Lord, to know how you've loved me? Because that's the way I want to love. And then secondly, practice on it in church. <laughs> hey, you want a safe place to practice loving each other? This is it. I mean, it's not always safe as we'd like it, but it is. This is a safe place to try it out. And when you do, the end result is going to be that you will love people like Jesus and, and people including unsaved people, maybe especially unsaved people, will notice. Devote your life to this. Become famous for this. And when you become famous for it, Jesus is the one who will get the attention. You don't have to worry about it. You become famous for loving like Jesus, Jesus will get the attention. One last thought before we go. Can you imagine what God could do through us as a church when we really learn to love like this? 
And more and more people are getting saved and they're learning to love like this. And not only are we becoming famous for this as individuals, but we are also becoming famous for this as a church. What could God do through Life Source Church if we were known to love like Jesus? That's what we're known for. It changed a neighborhood, a community, a city, a state, a nation, and the whole world. The mark of a real Christian is loving others the way Christ loves you. Make sure it's a mark that you bear. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have loved us like this, Lord. And we just touch the, barely the hem of the garment on how you have loved us. How your son has loved us. Lord, burden us for this. Work in our lives in such a way that we, we do begin to bear this mark. And this is what we become known for. We become famous for loving like you. Knowing that when we do, people will look to you and come to know you. Pray for anyone in here today, Father, who hasn't ever reach that point in life where they've once and for all received Christ as Savior for forgiveness of sins and eternal life. I pray, even right now in their hearts, they would say to you, yes, I received Christ. Or if they have questions that they would ask. Do your great work in us here today, Father. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.